Welcome to the sixth episode of the Conquerors Podcast. In this episode, we interview David Lachman. David is a science communicator and a typesetting consultant. We learn all about how David developed a passion for science and how he had mentors along the way that helped him thrive to be the scientist that he is today. We take a deep dive into David's background and his philosophy on life, and this is definitely an episode you don't want to miss. Thank you for listening to The Conqueror's Podcast. So I have with me David Lachman. 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 And um, David is um, the sixth uh, guest of the Conqueror's Podcast, and he's been trying to avoid this moment, but um, he's here today. I cannot dodge for long. (laughs) I guess it came up to me, so. Yes, yes. So David, um, tell us where you're from, where are you from, and where did you grow up? So I'm, I'm from Trinidad, that's where I grew up, and it's in the Caribbean. So for those of you that don't know, and I think there are going to be very few people who, who don't know where the Caribbean is, but it's, it's basically a chain of islands um, uh, that's between North and South America, so it forms like this kind of a curve. And Trinidad is the southernmost island, so it's close to Venezuela. It's basically a dot on the map of the world. <laughs> Excellent. But that's where I'm from. And they have the the very best food in the world that you can get is Trinidadian food. I I totally agree. <laughs> you know, it's nice mix of cuisine. So, what was it like like growing up in in Trinidad, or how long were you in Trinidad before you came to the states? So. So Trinidad is, is what we'd call a developing nation. Mm-hmm. So it's it's not like living here where in terms of, I don't know, what, what are some of the differences in terms of, you know, accessibility to certain things, right? But, you know, we do have, you know, necessary technologies, science and all that, that, that takes place. So it's it's different. Yeah. I mean, I've I visited some developing countries and the thing that really amazed me was that even though they didn't have all the things that I necessarily that I necessarily had in the states, it seems like they're they're able to find happiness and joy. And I was like, how is it that they don't have even a quarter of the things that I have, but every time I see them, they're happy, they have a smile on their face. It was it was really fascinating. So how um, so? How long were you in Trinidad before you came to the states? About um, I'd say about thirty years. Thirteen. Thirty. Three zero. Oh, three zero. So most of your yeah adult most, life. Most of my my adult life was was yeah in Trinidad. Wow. So do you like Trinidad better than the U.S.? In in some ways, yes, I do. Um, what do you What do you miss about it? It's the weather for one is is much nicer. Yeah. Um, Can't beat the weather. You know, it Bakersfield tends to be kind of very hot, especially yeah. during the summer. Um, very hot as well, but not in the same way. Yeah. And then you know it's like you're twenty minutes away from the beach wherever you are. Oh, so, wow. 
I mean, you can literally just like go up to your friends and like, yeah, let's go to the beach. <laughs> and in less than an hour, you know, assuming that you know you get everyone on a consensus, you know, you can be there. So, so that's always nice. And I guess you can't exactly do that here. No, you can't. <laughs> I mean, we can go to Lake Ming or Kern river canal whatever it is now sometimes it's a river sometimes a riverbed but yeah yeah but they're not the same you know it's, i mean i've been to lakes before and it's, it's i mean it's water but yeah it's not a beach it's not a beach it's like um when people tell me they have beaches in new york i was like eh, i don't think so no <laughs> So, okay, so we're going to we're going to zoom out a little bit and talk about. So, what is it that you do now? What's your what's your profession? So, I so in terms of what I do, there is obviously what I get paid for and what I don't get paid for. Okay, that's a good distinction. Um so I I still do a lot of like typesetting and formatting for academia. And I do occasionally do get paid for some science writing, but what I do consider the stuff that I don't consider that I don't get paid for right now um, that I'm more passionate about is the science communication mm-hmm. aspect of of things, and it's, it's basically you know being able to communicate science to people you know through blogs or um, through helping others on a Facebook group that mm-hmm. I I run, and you know, so I think if I had to say what I do, I I definitely put it into the wheelhouse of science communicator. Science communicator. So you mentioned some big words like typesetting. So what is what is typesetting? So that that comes from when we started printing um, material. You know, those those early days. And so you had people that would decide how things were laid out from the choice of font, how things were spaced out, how they were formatted so that they would look good. And essentially, over time, what evolved was a series of practices to make things look good. Right? And, and that's essentially what typesetting is. Right. So, for example when i have a book and the pages well the the top margin and the bottom margins are spaced a certain way and then the the page number is a certain way or has a certain font that would be considered typesetting right yeah so so the idea is you know you want the act of reading to be as enjoyable or not tedious for a person right and there's some evidence that you know the choice of typesetting or how, how some things are typeset can affect a, a reader's you know experience. So whether you're reading a story or reading a journal article in, in some scientific publication, you know you don't want people to just like stop reading after the first paragraph. <laughs> yeah, like for example, I mean I'm sure this loosely pertains to typesetting, but when you write a blog article or email, I find personally that when the, the text isn't um, jumbled together, like huge, large chunks of text, 
it's easier to read if it's broken up with spaces. Yeah, and, and, and that's part part of what it is. So we you can the the rules for, for print and for, for the web are a little bit different, right? Because you're looking on different mediums. Mm-hmm. One you're looking on a printed page and the other one you're looking at a screen. But we have rules to, to apply so that we can break things up so people see this white space so their brains don't get overwhelmed with all this information. So so yeah, it applies both on a screen and off. Very good. So that's typesetting. So science communicator. So is that kind of like like Bill Nye? Would Bill Nye be considered a science communicator? Yes, Bill Nye would be considered a science communicator. Um, so when you look at science communication, it's a pretty broad range of things that people do. So someone like Bill Nye is, is one example of it. Um, so many things that people do on YouTube is, is another example. Mm-hmm. So there are other science communicators there that use you know, video to convey their ideas. And then there are bloggers, there are people who are on Twitter, they're on Instagram. And then there are the science journalists so they all formed that big, large group and of science communicators that can be subdivided into the smaller groups. Yeah, I, I bet if we looked at it, um, we were impacted by science communication in more ways than we, we probably think. Like probably a lot of the, the movies we watch or TV shows at some point, probably went through the hands of a, a science communicator, right? Yes, that's that's also true. Um, I've actually interviewed a few, um, few, a few of these consultants on on mm-hmm. these these movies. Like, I've talked to the, um, two of the consultants who did Ghostbusters, that wow. that reboot. Um, I also talked to the science consultant for a TV show called Twelve Monkeys. Mm-hmm which is a, a time tra- travel show. So a lot of people do try to, a lot of producers do try to get the science right on on their shows. And sometimes they hire experts to mm-hmm. tell them, okay, well, we want to introduce this into a show. Um, how do we do it? How do we get it right? And that's also a form of, of science communication because you know, people are exposed to these ideas and hopefully we expose them to the correct ideas. Very good. And we're going to talk about those interviews that you did later on. But I want to I want to learn, when did you know that you wanted to be a scientist, a science communicator or a, a typesetter? Um, so being a scientist was something that I was always interested in, you know, even from an early age. So when I was a kid, I read a lot of comic books. I watched a lot of Star Trek. So, and especially the the Marvel comic books. And those books were all sort of heavily science related, right? And I think back then, you know, they weren't just looking at the social implications of you know living in a diverse society they were also looking at how science um impacted us so for example peter parker gets bitten by a radioactive spider right 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 and you know that that 
speaks to our concerns about radiation. You know, the same thing. Oh, very true. The Incredible Hulk, you know, he, he gets his powers from, you know, an accidental nuclear detonation. And during time when the Incredible Hulk came out, you know, that's what was happening in Los Alamos in New, New Mexico. There were a lot of these nuclear tests. And the same thing with Daredevil, you know, he gets blinded because, you know, a truck is transporting nuclear waste. And, wow. you know, some of that waste spills because he, he tries to push a bl- um, an old guy out of the way to save his life. You know, one of those drums, you know, um, falls over a tra- truck and splashes into his eyes. And the interesting thing is that's how they transported nuclear waste back then. Wow. Sometimes it was through um, these neighborhoods. So it speaks to our fears of, you know, what, what this is, you know, this, this nuclear technology, what it means for our lives. But at the same time, it also gives these characters these remarkable powers. And that always fascinated me. And wow. so I was like, yeah, I want to I do this. I want to be a scientist. And then, you know, you watch Star Trek. And that's another science-based, you know, TV show where everyone is using, you know, the the entire future of the world is focused on science and they're exploring these new worlds. So I want to be there. Wow, that's that's powerful. I never made the connection between the, the environmental and the social justice side of these comic book heroes. Yeah, you, I, I guess... I've been that heavily influenced my life and views. Yeah. You know, those that social justice aspect of, of those stories as well wow. as the science. Wow. So what was maybe your earliest memory of maybe if it was reading a comic book or something that happened and you just said, Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna do that. I'm gonna do that. Um I don't think there's like any one earliest memory. Uh-huh. It has it has always been okay. I want to do science, but I think if I had a choice, it would be something related to exploration, mm-hmm. because again, you know, I was heavily influenced by Star Trek right. back then, so I was kind of like, okay, is there an alien civilization out there? And since I was a kid, I was like, gee, do these kids go to school like us? Or <laughs> what, what do their schools look like? Yeah. And, you know, as 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 reading this book, I can't remember the name right now, we had, had this alien race and they communicated, you know, tactically, right? So they touch each other and they can form this huge network if the entire population, um, you know, touches each other and they can transmit that information. And I was like... Gee, what if their schools are like that? You know, it's like, is this how these kids learn? Wow. And I don't know, I was, I was just like fascinated and wanted to become a scientist, you know, to, wow. to explore these, these ideas. So it sounds like um, from a young age you had a, a real strong curiosity. Yeah, I, I would say so. I was, I was always that kid doing Did you get these. in trouble because of your curiosity? <laughs> um, or are you a well-behaved kid? I would say that I was always trying to do some 
experimentally other. Um, and I think, so remarkably, my family and teachers put up with it. <laughs> Was know? there one experiment where you think you might have just kind of pushed the edge and you said, I don't know about this, David? They, they may have been a few, but I managed to do quite a lot of stuff on my own as well. Yeah. So if any bad things happened, like I could keep it hidden. <laughs> Who's an example? Well, a lot of them involved fire. <laughs> really? <laughs> so um, that, that's some of the more dangerous ones. Yeah. And, you know, when you're that age, you know, you don't think about the consequences that, that much. Wow. As opposed to when you're much older. Yeah, my, my, not that the story is about me, but my mom always tells me a story about my uncle, who was also a scientist, and how for some reason he got into his mind that he wanted to dissect a cat. <laughs> <laughs> he wanted to dissect a cat. And so I don't know where my grandmother got this cat from. Maybe it was a cat that died, but she figured out a way to sterilize the cat so he could dis- it open. <laughs> dissect it and that was that's a mother's <laughs> love right there <laughs> but so i mean mm-hmm. was there a there was there a point when maybe you thought ah, there's something else that i want to do um but it didn't kind of pan out oh uh-huh. so uh, when i was about like 11 i got my first computer and uh-huh. then I, I thought okay computer science computer programming is is going to be it and i don't know then it just went back as i go, got older it went back to to science so you kind of you kind of veered away from the the computer science path computers but i would imagine that even though you're a you're a scientist you still use computers yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I, as I got into it, yeah, um, I also got into some of the the computational side of of being a scientist. So yeah, there there was some some coding, but it wasn't like actual computer science. Right. You know, it's just using it. Yeah, it was like a it was a tool that you used to answer. Yeah, certain some questions. Other yeah. Now, you're probably not going to like this, but I looked up your, your LinkedIn, oh. and I saw you were like a an IT manager somewhere. What, uh, was, what was that? Yeah, so um, back home, yeah, I I briefly ran a, so I guess you can call it a networking company. So a basically, networking company, really? So basically, it was just to, to, um, to like troubleshoot and build networks. It was just in Windows 2000. Mm-hmm. Um, that's still relevant. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Yeah. So that's that's back when I was MCSE certified, mm-hmm. in I guess you know, of course Windows two thousand. Um, I don't think I know anything now. I think so many <laughs> things have changed. But yeah, things have changed drastically. And so, so you you tried your hand in computers for a little bit, and you realize, okay, that's not for me, but you were led back to, you know, this route of being the scientific science communicator and even a writer in general. So was there was there like someone that kind of helped you or a mentor or someone who guided you 
in the right direction or a book or, or, or something that kind of... Well, I think I've also been fortunate in high school that I had some very patient teachers. <laughs> you know, um, one, one teacher was actually a nuclear physicist. Wow. Um, I don't know why he came back to Trinidad, but he, he did. And so whenever I had questions that were outside of what we were learning in, in class, he, he'd always, you know, take time off from his lunch and actually work with me. Sometimes, you know, explain some of these concepts and these ideas and work truly maths with me. And there was also an electronics teacher who would... So basically, it's like you couldn't leave high school kids alone in a lab. You couldn't. <laughs> no, you couldn't. <laughs> so someone, an adult, had to be there. And he was another one who, who would be there, who would give up his lunch hour so that he could make sure I didn't kill anyone <laughs> or kill myself or damage school property. Yeah. So if I wanted to build something or I wanted to experiment with something in electronics, he was like, okay, you can do it. Just wow. don't, don't kill yourself. <laughs> now, do you think you would be like the, the scientist or the professional that you are today if you didn't have those, those mentors? Do you think you would have eventually figured it out? Or do you think they were like really pivotal for who you are today? Oh, I cannot deny their, their influence. Yeah. You know, um, their, their influence has, has been totally positive. Uh, I, but I think I would have stayed the course. Yeah. Right. But I think what they did was so important, um, especially if it is for other kids. If, if other kids get that intention, that attention, you know, they, it can change their lives, right? And so you have a kid who might be on the fence about a STEM career, might decide, okay, I want to do this because, you know, this teacher invested his or her time to make sure that I got those skills that would help me if I decide to do this in college mm -hmm. or in, in graduate school. Mm -hmm. So I cannot deny their, their contributions, you know, whether it's big or small, it, I think it, it has been impactful. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think within every child there's like a, a natural curiosity or aptitude for something. And I think these mentors recognize those things and help to kind of just nudge us in the right direction, right? Um, and so, so you have these mentors who helped you not to blow things up and kill people, <laughs> but gave you the opportunity uh, to learn and to, to deepen your curiosity. So, I think I read on your Science versus Hollywood. I can't remember which blog it was, but you mentioned something about, you know, pursuing truth. Now, as a scientist, you know, you're trying to figure out, you know, what is true, what is not true. Um, now, as a scientist, has it been difficult when you discover something that you once thought was true and then because the science says it's not true, you have to totally abandon that. Yeah, that, that happens, you know, quite quite frequently. And, you know, I think we all face that that problem, right? You know, from 
even the time of of Galileo and, and Copernicus, you know, we, we all had beliefs that I guess you could say put us at the center ever of everything. And then science comes along and says, hey, okay, well, this is no longer true. Mm-hmm. And, you know, your standard reaction, you know, ha- the typical reaction has been people have rejected what right, science right. has said. So, you know, when you look, you know, back then, we believe that our planet was the center of the universe. And the then... it was flat. <laughs> you know, some... You know, it was flat. And then some upstart comes and says, well, no, it's not. We actually revolve around the sun. You know, people were like, hell, we, we are not going to accept that. And we see the same problem apply, you know, apply here today mm-hmm. with evolution, right? So evolution, again, you know, topples our, our our privilege and our you know security and tells us that okay well we're just part of the larger picture mm-hmm. and then you see this with today with vaccinations right right you know people don't want to vaccinate their children and science is saying well no you, you have to do it mm-hmm. and in most cases, it should be mandatory that we vaccinate. Or we might look at climate change. So we're always constantly challenging our assumptions of mm-hmm. the world. And yes, it is difficult, but you know we have to always assume that what we know might be incorrect and how we can change that and how we can grow as as people, you know, to become better human beings. And that should always be the goal. I agree. I like what you said that assume that what we know might be incorrect. So do you have like a a story of maybe something that you had to personally let go of in the name of science that was particularly challenging? So let's see, when, when, you know, GMOs first came out, I, I was skeptical about their their importance. James? GMOs. Oh, okay. Right, right, right. You know, I was like, okay, so all these modifications that we're doing, you know, are they absolutely necessary? You know, not just to crops, but to animals, right? You know, are they really making our world better? And... So yeah, I, w- I was on, on that side, right? Um, I believe Bill Nye was on it as well, you know? And as more and more evidence came, you know, you know, became available that showed that GMOs are actually good for us, you know, I, I changed that, that opinion. But that change didn't, didn't come, you know, quickly or easily, easy, yeah. right? Because you know, it's not like one day you're skeptical and then the next <laughs> yeah. day it just switches. You know, it's, it's, it's a process, right? So you take that information, you analyze it, but you always consider, okay, maybe I'm wrong about this. Maybe these things are good. And I think that, that's where that, should we call it humility? I don't know. Yeah. I think yeah. it goes back to that Possessing, yeah, I think humility is a good way to describe it where you can admit that I was wrong, that you were wrong, right? Yeah, 
And, you know, I think we, we like to think that, okay, well, we're smart, we're knowledgeable. And if someone comes to us for advice, we can give them good advice. But, you know, if we are wrong about that and they come to us like a year later or a week later and you realize you were wrong, you know, it, it takes that, yeah, humility to, to admit, okay, you know what, I was wrong about this GMO thing. I know you thought I was smart, but <laughs> I messed up. I, I got it wrong. And, you know, now I looked at the evidence and this is this is correct. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a good place to start from. Um, and that's a whole nother conversation because when you think of when you think of GMOs, it's like, of course, something that's not in its most natural state has to be worse than something that has been modified, right? But it sounds like you've discovered that that's not always the case, which is an interesting, interesting conversation. Well, so the thing that we have to realize with GMOs is that we have been doing this from the time that human beings settled down and started growing crops, right? So everything you've, you've, you eat, today um, has been modified right. for our consumption. We have changed it, right, from its wild form to something that we can use. The difference what happened back then and what happens today is just a matter of how we do it, right. that, that process of modification. So back then, you know, we might breed over a long time to get those traits that we do. Now today we can precisely, you know, modify genes to get those traits. But just because we do it in a lab and we snip DNA molecules and insert that information into into the genome doesn't mean that isn't quite different from what they did. They did before, right? Right. So it's just a matter of process. And if you are afraid of what they do today, I think you have to ask yourself the question, why? Right. You know, is it just because you're afraid of the process or is it something else? Now that I, now that I think about it, I think it's a whole whole marketing thing because the, the foods that are, you know, quote unquote organic, they love to put that no GMOs and organic on it and it somehow increases... <laughs> <laughs> the price of it. The price of it, yeah. And, you know, it comes down, that's going to come down to accessibility, mm -hmm. right? Uh, we don't really face that that problem of accessibility here. I mean, there is some food insecurity in the U.S., but in developing nations, you know, there, there is that problem. And, you know, GMOs can, you know, increase crop yields for one. And what that means is that eventually becomes a matter of life or death for certain people in the world. And should we who live in developed nations, you know, have that power to deny that technology that can save lives, mm -hmm. you know, to other people in the world? I mean, are we going to deny people that simply because, well, I don't feel comfortable with this technology? Yeah. And that's a whole... That's a whole, whole nother conversation because you get into, you know... Privilege and, you know, a lot of things, you know, so... Yeah, like, 
who owns the rights to this genetically modified strain of, you know, corn, <laughs> right? Yeah. And if you're caught using this gen genetically modified strain of corn without a permission, then, you know, you owe us some money because it's copyright infringement or it's uh, you're still in our intellectual property. Well, that that doesn't happen as often as, as people think. Um, so as far as, you know, making sure that, you know, these genes don't get transferred over a large, you know, distance, you know, we, we have ways to, to combat that, right? So you can grow, you know, say the GMO corn that has a certain trait. And if another farmer wants to grow, he, he or she has to be a certain distance away and that will prevent the cross-pollination and gene transfer, you know, distance will, will solve those, those problems. So I think you know, those cases where some, some farmers were, got in trouble for using crops that they had no permission to use it because of some gene patent are of pretty few. And very few. Yeah, yeah, very few. Um, it's probably got gotten overblown. Yeah. So, who knows? Well, we can we can go dive into GMO and organics. I don't know if it would be a good uh, good episode, but so I want to learn. So, so you are a science communicator. Um, you also do typesetting, and I can imagine that on this on the journey of um, and you're also would you consider yourself a freelancer? Yeah, I'm. I'm a freelancer. Yeah. Yeah. So I can imagine that you know to get where you are. There's been some, some ups and there's been some downs. And I can imagine that it hasn't always been easy. So, is there a particular uh, challenge that you had to overcome to, you know, be who you are today that you could point to? Um, challenges. I I think it has always been, you know, a way, you know, a challenge to define who you are, to find yeah. that that purpose, to always take whatever skill set you have and put it to good use, even though it might not be that profitable right now. What, you know, as, as long as you're alive and, and happy, <laughs> you know, I, I guess that that's good. Um, but yeah, I think I think that that challenge uh, is, you know, finding these new ways in which you can use what you have, you know, whatever skill set that is, and that that's it for me. I I don't know if I'm going to be doing the same exact thing ten years from now. <laughs> it's yeah. going to look different, but it's it's a challenge. Yeah. I mean, so I, I agree with you on that. So there's a there's like a, a very, I don't want to say the word traditional, but it's a, there's a very ordinary, ordinary way that you can live your life. And that is you go and you work for someone else and you collect a paycheck every single month or bi-weekly or whatever. And if you do your work reasonably well, you can expect, you know, a consistent paycheck. But you, Dave, you've chose not to do that. <laughs> You're doing uh -oh. things differently. And so so what I'm hearing 
in that, I'm sure there was, what, what made you want to go and work for yourself when you could have just, you know, been a teacher somewhere or done research somewhere? I, I don't know. I think I've always been somewhat independent-minded, yeah. um, probably a little crazy as well. <laughs> because, I mean, I, I did run a networking company back in, in Trinidad, right? And, you know, I, I could have also chosen to just, you know, use those skills and find another business to work in, right? But I chose... Hey, I got I got my MCSC. I'm gonna start a networking company. You know, it's, it's, it's probably not you know the thing that most people think of. Mm-hmm. So, I guess it has always been in me to do something on on my own. Of course, if it means working for someone, I can do the exact same thing that I'm doing, and they'll pay me a lot of money for it. <laughs> I might be enticed to, to do it. It depends on who I'm working for and how much autonomy I have and, and so on. Yeah. So so there's always been this thing in here inside of you to work work for yourself and to do things do things differently. Yeah, I, I think so, yeah. And so um what what advice um I should say, okay, let me back up. So you mentioned how the biggest challenge is to take your your skills and your talents and your gifts and figure out how do you put them in a way that people want to pay for them. And, I mean, what were some of the mishaps you've had along the way to trying to figure that out? I mean, as a freelancer, you could charge too little, you could charge too much, you can... Well, I, I think that that is what it comes down to essentially, right? Especially if you might be one of the few people doing what you're doing in the way that you're doing, right? So it's putting a value to, to your work, right? And it's negotiating not just with yourself, but with, with others as to how much you're, you're actually worth, right? I think I have this problem, um, I still do, and I think many other people do, is thinking that you're not worth the price that you're asking for, right? So yeah, when, when I started off, I would do like, okay, $25 an hour, right? Because I didn't think people would pay me 40 bucks an hour, or 60, or even 80, or 90, right? And even after you do this for a while and you, you become better at what you do, you still don't think that you're good enough, right? So that is always a, a challenge and you know as as far as I'm I'm concerned. Um I think other people face that problem. You know, we, we don't think we are we are good enough. We suffer from imposter syndrome. Yeah. You know, it's like why am I doing this when I'm pretty sure there's someone out there who is <laughs> like 10 times better than I am? And who knows? Pro- probably someone is saying the same thing about you. It's like, look look at Tabari. It's like, he has. Oh, look a, at David. <laughs> no, I, I don't, I don't even say look at David. <laughs> you know, look at Tabari. He has it all, all figured out. You know, it's. So. 
Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. Um, as a freelancer, even as a just a person in general, you have to figure out what is your worth. Even as a even as an employee, you have to figure out what value am I to this particular person. And it's not easy. I personally struggle with that. When I was a freelancer, what to charge people. Um, even some people say $25 an hour. That's a lot of money. But it's no, really it's, not as a freelancer it's when you're not, dealing with taxes. You know, yeah, especially when you deal with taxes, right? Yeah, it, it you know, a lot of that money like completely evaporates, right? But, you know, even on, on the higher end of things, you know, you know, even if you're going like 80 or 90 or $120 an hour, you know, a lot of that money can can evaporate into paying the government, you know, the, what you owe them. So, yeah, it's, it's difficult. <laughs> yeah. So let's let's zoom back out a little bit. So we've learned about a little bit about who David is, some of the challenges he's experienced. So what are you... What are you working on right now? What is it that um, keeps you occupied? You talked about it a little bit earlier. So, um, well, besides the the typesetting thing, you know, um, I also have this Facebook group mm-hmm. of science communicators that that I'm um, working on. So it's, it's basically to to have this network of science communicators. Um, a lot of them are bloggers um, to figure out, you know, what what they need to succeed as as you know communicators, you know, in in this new world. Um, our world is is very technologically gr- driven. It's driven by social media. It's driven by the internet, and it's how do we navigate this this world because. A lot of which we are taught as communicators comes from journalism, and we're still embedded in this world of print journalism. Mm-hmm. And we, I, I don't want to say we are losing the battle, right? Um, but we're not doing as well as we can when it comes to conveying information to people, right? So when you look at things like climate change, for example, we still have close to the majority of Americans who are skeptical of climate change. And you know, one of the reasons has to deal with how we communicate with them. You know, before we just believe that we give people information and they're gonna take this information and they're gonna update their, their biases. But you know, at the core of the biases is also a sense of self, right? Mm-hmm. Of of who you are. And we haven't done, well, journalists haven't done that very well. And I think, you know, getting, you know, bloggers and YouTubers and podcasters to center their message on, you know, on on specific people and tailoring that message to certain people can help get that, that message across. And then there's also the technical aspect of, you know, getting that message out from using SEO so that, you know, Google searching and spiders can find your blog mm-hmm. because you look at some of these anti-science and pseudoscience websites, you look up this information on, on Google and 
They rank pretty high. They rank pretty high, and we are not doing that. Yeah. So that is a huge failure on our part, and I think that's something that we have to learn. We have to change. So how do they do it, and how can we do it? You know, they also get a lot of money through merchandising and reaching out to companies who sponsor them, and with that comes the money to increase their reach. Mm-hmm. And I think we have to start changing how we see what we do. Right. Very good. So you you run uh, two podcasts. So what's the name of what are the name of your podcasts? So yes, there are two po- podcasts. One is the Science Bloggers podcast. Hold on one second. I'm gonna have to edit this part out. <laughs> We need a soundproof room. I know. <laughs> we just have to edit this part out. <laughs> so, so um, you have two podcasts. What are the name of those podcasts? So, so one podcast is the Science Bloggers podcast. So um, I'm using this as a platform to talk to other science communicators. And to highlight people who I think, one, are interested in, and two, that, that people should, should listen to. Uh, unfortunately, science, and by extension, science communication, isn't exactly a diverse group, right? Um, I think most scientists of color, if they go to a scientific conference, are gonna tell you, you're gonna see a sea of white people. And with that comes a certain, you you feel a little uncomfortable, you feel a little isolated. And I think that needs to change, right? Mm -hmm. And the same thing with science communication. You know, a lot of people who become science communicators have science backgrounds. And since one group isn't that diverse, it stands to reason, you know, by induction that the other group isn't. But that doesn't mean that the people don't exist. Right. So I do make an effort to interview, you know, people of color, for example. Because um I think you may have seen this on, on, on the on the internet. Um and it speaks about feminism. If she can see it, she can be it. Right. And I think the same applies here that if I can highlight these minorities I can get other minorities to, to join or to become scientists or to become science communicators because we need these diverse voices the, the, this diversity of perspective in the stories we report it cannot just be the voice of a white male right and I think you're 100% correct with that because if if someone sees and hears and experiences someone who looks like them, who who knows their experience or who can join their experience, then they can say, "Hey, maybe I can, I can yes. do that as well." Yes, and you know, and, and you know, a lot of these communicators are also scientists as well. You know, the most recent one I, I talked to, um, he works in the Naval Research Laboratory, right? So his research is like top secret, can't tell you, you know, 
the exact specifics of what he does. But as an African-American man working in a field like that, a field like that, to work in an institution like that, that to me is like a big deal, mm. right? We don't see that many people like that around. And the fact that he has a chemistry YouTube channel that he's trying to get children into, well, not necessarily chemistry, just interested in science, mm-hmm. is even bigger, right? Mm. And I think we need to focus on people like that, you know, get them, you know, tell people, hey, look what this guy is doing. Okay, he, he may just get like 50 views on yeah. his YouTube per video, but what he's doing is important. And if he becomes a part of the community, um, how can we help him? Because we do have experienced mm-hmm. YouTubers within the group as well. Mm-hmm. So hopefully we get a certain synergy taking place right. so we can help each other become more diverse and stronger as a community. Yes, very, very important. There's actually one of my um, friends I went to college with. He has a, a blog for biology. I think he's actually, I think he's from Trinidad. I think he may be from Barbados. Well, that's, that's close. <laughs> close, <laughs> close enough. enough. Yeah. So I know you have another podcast. Can you talk about it? I know it's not launched yet. No. So the, the other one is, is an extension of, of the blog, um, Science versus Hollywood. And that one, I also look at science in, in popular culture and TV shows and movies. So my approach is a little bit different. So I am talking to some, some, some of our friends who are like um, screenwriters or directors. Um, I do talk to the occasional scientists or to someone who has consulted on, on TV shows or, or movies about how they get that science across. Or we might just discuss, you know, science in our favorite TV shows and movies. So I think, you know, anyone who's listening to this who has this kind of like casual interest or they watch this movie and it's like, hey, is this possible? That's what we're going to talk about. Oh, sounds very interesting. So what is, um, if people wanted to reach out to you, what's the best way they could uh, reach out to you? Um, you can follow me on Twitter. I am SciWriterDave, S-C-I-W-R-I-T-E-R-D-A-V-E. Or you can just email me on, on Gmail, SciWriterDave at gmail.com. Very good. So do you have any parting words of wisdom? Um, be excellent to each other. <laughs> That's very good. Well, this has been the Conquerors Podcast, and uh, until our next episode, keep on conquering. Um, Thank you for having me. Oh, very happy to have you. Thank you so much for listening to our episode. If you would like more information about each entrepreneur, go to www.meshcowork.com. Until the next episode, make sure you keep on conquering.